And our passage for today is from the book of Daniel. Uh, and this is the word of the Lord from Daniel 1, verses 8 through 21. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, my king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were with you of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your, uh, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and chanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, David. Uh, it is such a privilege to be here with you all this morning. This is uh, my first time uh, attending City Church, and so it's always good to uh, be with a new congregation, and um, I consider it a great privilege to be able to stand in the pulpit and bring the Word of God to you this morning. To be fully transparent, um, I'm coming to you, just to let you know a little bit about myself, um, experiencing the uh, waves of grief um, after the loss of the church that I was a part of, um, that I led for the last seven and a half years. Uh, we were a casualty of COVID. Uh, we were a neighborhood church in the Woodbine area of Nashville by the fairgrounds and started that church with many hopes and dreams of what we could be and become. And things went very well for a time and then uh, it got really difficult. And we started to wander around the city, kind of like Israel in the desert, and could never really stabilize after COVID. Um, and so we decided this past June to dissolve the church, which uh, is um, probably, if not the biggest, one of the biggest losses of my life. Um, so I'm grieving that and um, feeling very much by the world standards like a failure. Um, I know that's not true. And I know that uh, God worked certainly in and through what we did, that our labor was not in vain. But 
um, there, there are definitely days of doubt. Uh, and I tell you that, one, just to express my gratitude to David, who's reached out to me uh, and, and been very life-giving, encouraging, but also to give me opportunities to continue to do what I love. Uh, because in the loss of your pulpit, to be able to have a pulpit, again, to be able to preach from is really um, a great honor. And so thank you for that. Um, and also, I tell you that, too, uh, for anyone in this room who has experienced your own failures. If you come into this room this morning, you feel like a failure. Um, I stand in solidarity with you. Uh, I know um, how that feels, and I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm so thankful that there are these eternal promises that says that God works in our weakness, that in our weakness, he is strong, that our labor is not in vain, that we are not failures. Um, and so, you know, this story this morning about Daniel and his three friends, they are suffering the loss of their country. <laughs> They're suffering the loss of their land, their city, their people. They are thrust in this incredibly traumatic situation. And I'm sure themselves feeling like failures. Like, where is God? What is he doing? And so I think there's a lot for us to learn in our own stories of weakness and suffering and grief that God has not abandoned us. That he does indeed work in our weaknesses, especially through our weaknesses. So let me pray and then we'll dig in. Father, I thank you that we get to be here together and we get to be nourished by your eternal word that has never changed. I thank you that you do not change. Thus, our hope does not waver, that no matter what this world delivers to us, whether it's illness or death, the loss of a dream, you still care. Lord, you, you sent Jesus, who the world deemed as a total failure. He died. And through that, you brought the greatest hope the world has ever known. You work through shattered dreams. You work through loss to bring extraordinary revelations of your grace and your goodness and your love and your mercy. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for the story that reminds us of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, just to let you know a little bit more about myself, I'm also a huge movie lover. Uh, and um, as I was preparing this sermon, a, a random and unexpected movie came to mind. Um, and it's the, the movie uh, Pig. In 2021, Nicolas Cage starred in um, this movie that uh, I had very low expectations of. I was a huge Nick Cage fan back in like the, I was like 80s, 90s kid, you know? So like Face Off and Con Air and The Rock were like my favorite movies, you know? And Nicolas Cage was like this iconic actor. But as we know, you know, he went through a pretty, pretty big rough patch for about a decade there if you follow movies. And he started doing a lot of, you know, straight to video movies. He's having a bit of a resurgence in his career. Have any of you all seen this movie, Pig? It came out in 2021. We got one person. Okay, so you can engage with me. I'm going to give some spoilers because I assume no one's seen it. Um, but I'll leave a little bit for you in case you want to uh, check this movie out. But um, in, in the age where kind of the revenge thriller has become like the most popular you know, kind of movie with these John Wick movies and you know, the Liam Neeson Taken movies and all that stuff, um, 
Pig uh, is this movie that, that kind of subverts <laughs> all the expectations you have for a revenge thriller. In, in one revenge thriller, Kill Bill, that was very popular by Quentin Tarantino, um, Uma Thurman, the main character, says, revenge is a dish best served cold. It's kind of this iconic line. Cage's um, pig turns this idea totally on its head in the most surprising of ways. What starts out as a movie set up to be a classic revenge thriller slowly turns into a movie about grace rather than vengeance in the most unexpected of ways. The story is about Cage's character, Robin Feld. He's this reclusive former world-class chef in the Portland you know, food scene. And his wife had died 15 years earlier and he's grieving that loss. And so he just goes and he moves out into uh, the wilderness, into the forest. But he has this truffle pig and a truffle pig goes around and, and finds truffles to, to cook with, these rare truffles. And this is how he makes his money and he sustains himself. But in the movie, um, someone comes and steals his truffle pig and abuses his truffle pig. And so then we're left with this narrative, okay, how does, how does he get his revenge? How does he go back and rescue his truffle pig? Well, he decides to partner with uh, his business partner named Amir. And Amir's dad, Darius, just happens to be uh, this cutthroat food industry bigwig who is the one who stole Nicolas Cage's pig. And so it's about Nicolas Cage and how he goes about rescuing this pig, and what he chooses to do is really remarkable. He chooses to go around Portland with his friend Amir, Darius's son, and they go on this journey to find all these rare ingredients so that Nicolas Cage's character, Robin Feld, can cook a meal for Darius in order to soften his heart and get him to tell him where his pig is. <laughs> That's the way he's going to get his revenge, is he's going to serve him a warm dish. He's going to set a table of grace before him because uh, Robin Feld has this kind of superpower. He can remember every meal he's ever cooked. And while he's on the journey to get these ingredients, Amir, Darius's son, tells him about his traumatic relationship with his dad. And ever since his mom got cancer and has been in a coma, his dad has been abusive to him. And the last good memory he has of his family was at a meal that they had together at Robin Feld, Nicholas Cage's character's five-star restaurant years earlier. And because he can remember every meal he's ever cooked, he goes and he collects the ingredients of that one singular meal cooked years prior, and he sets that before Darius and Amir. And Darius's dad is so overcome with his kindness. He says, why are you doing this for me? It's one of the most beautiful and moving scenes I've ever seen in a movie, in large part because it's so full of the gospel and because it subverts all expectations and delivers this unexpected kindness that you hope leads to peace and repentance. And you can watch the movie to see what it, what it actually does. But I share that with you because it made me think, again, a Nicolas Cage movie made me think of the book of Daniel uh, or vice versa. Um, I was surprised by that too. And I share that with you because this is really a story of the subversive nature of unexpected grace and power and service that is on full display for Daniel and his friends in the presence of their enemies. What Daniel chooses to do here is so unexpected. He chooses to get his revenge in a sense in the way that he sets his table 
in the food that he chooses to eat. As we consider, you know, the many different reactions. Again, these people are taken, Daniel and his friends are taken from the land that they love. They're enslaved in this foreign land. They're being reprogrammed and reconditioned to become Babylonians and forsake their very identity. You think about all the possible reactions, right? This is certainly a great opportunity to take vengeance into their own hands. But they don't do that. One would expect this story to become one of revenge and vengeance, but it becomes this beautiful and convicting story of grace and kindness. As we're told about this amazing resolve of Daniel and his friends to be bold in their faith, to be liberal in their service, in their kindness to their very captors, their jailers, and this pagan king. So I think there's a lot for us here about how we're called to live as Christians in our own exile of sorts. David did such a good job of laying this out for us. Um, this culture that seeks to press and pressure us to adopt its values and its idols. How do we not only resist that, but how do we love in the midst of it? It's not just about being against it. It's about being in it and loving and serving for the, for the name of Jesus in bold faith, with bold resolve. So three points this morning I want us to examine to kind of break this up. I want to look at the purpose of Daniel and his friends' resolve, the power at work behind Daniel and his friends' resolve, and the product of Daniel and his friends' resolve. What is it producing when we make these kinds of resolutions to serve in humble obedience, especially amidst those who persecute us, those who disagree with us, those who would seek to harm us or get us to forsake our gods. First, the purpose of Daniel and his friends resolve. Again, if you weren't here last week, just, just a very quick review. Daniel's friends have been captured by Israel's enemy, Babylon. They've been taken in exile in a foreign land amongst their enemies. And the Babylonians who've dealt viciously with most of the people have decided to spare the best of them, right? So they find Daniel and his three friends. They, they happen to be the best of the Hebrews that they feel like they can then use to reprogram to become the best of the Babylonians, right? To seek to further the cause for the Babylonian empire. And we find Daniel here and his friends in this three-year kind of grad program, <laughs> to get them to adopt the customs and the beliefs, forsaking, again, their very identity. So much of who they were was wrapped up in their, their ethnicity, their nationality as Israelites. And it was expected that while some might try and resist this reprogramming, um, that that resistance would be remedied very quickly and swiftly or they would be discarded. So for us to read in verse nine that Daniel was the first to boldly and bravely as a 16-year-old teenager, let's not let that be lost on us. He's 16 and he's making these choices. For him to be the first to boldly and bravely resolve, which means to firmly determine to commit to a course of action without wavering, for him to resolve to not defile himself with the king's food or with his wine is rather shocking. Not only because of his age, but because of what he hopes to accomplish through it. 
It's so interesting that a 16-year-old Daniel chooses to make his stand with what he eats or does not eat. Now, this is not a hunger strike. This isn't even a protest. Really, this is a matter of conscience and conviction for Daniel. And I want to unpack why. We have to remember, again, his friends have been renamed. Um, you know, they, they had these Hebrew names. God is my judge, the meaning God is my judge. The Lord is gracious. Who is like my God? The Lord is my helper to these names about the pagan gods, that they're the ones who protect their life and they're servants of Nago and Aku and, you know, just, just these, these names that they never in a million years would have ever uh, thought to be uh, their identity. And the name changes their, their attempts to claim ownership over them. You know, some scholars even believe, as I was reading this week, that Daniel and his friends may have even had their very gender destroyed. I don't know if you all knew this, but, you know, they are serving under the chief of the eunuchs. We're never told if Daniel got married. Um, making slaves into eunuchs was a very common practice back then. So the humiliation by which they've been exposed to is it's vast and deep and traumatic. So the question becomes, why choose to try and salvage and protect your identity with what you will and will not eat? And why, if he didn't want to defile himself with food offered to the gods, would he choose vegetables and wine, which were also eventually offered to the gods along with the meats? What does he hope to accomplish? Why is this the moral and theological line to draw? What I believe is that Daniel knows that eating the food from the king's table that is daily set before him it's meant to make him fat. It's meant to make him comfortable. He knows the temptation is to buy into the opulence and the privilege and the pleasure of eating the king's food, of eating the best of the things, thus forgetting his need for God to provide him strength to endure his suffering in his exile. Daniel is so helpless in so many ways. Everything's been taken from this guy. He's saying, the one thing I can control is what I see before me on my table every, every day. And I'm gonna let that practice, that very simple, ordinary practice, remind me of who I really am and who my God really is and how much he loves me. Because you know what God loves to do? He loves to take ordinary and simple things and do extraordinary things with them. It's all throughout the scriptures, right? Jesus was as ordinary in many ways as they come, and yet God did extraordinary things through him. This means that as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, what God is often calling us to are the simplest of things. Be here. Worship on Sunday morning. Read the scriptures. Pray. Live in community in all the ways that David just laid out for you. It is so simple. Because what God is saying is, you be simple, you lean into your weakness, and I will show my strength. And so David's, Daniel's, choice here, is that he will set a simple meal of vegetables and water before himself every day, 
I'm sh- I, I wonder if Daniel's not thinking of Israel in the desert and the ordinary meal that God gave them every single day of manna from heaven. And he's wondering, you know, if God could do that and provide for them every day and show them that he was the one leading them through this wilderness, this pilgrimage, this, this exile of sorts, maybe he'll do the same for me and my friends. And I will, I will set this table before me to remind myself of his great faithfulness to his people. And you know what's amazing? Again, Daniel does this. He doesn't do this, again, in protest or in like some sort of secret rebellion He does this in the kindest and most respectful of ways. He has this idea and he thinks, I'll go ask permission to do this. I'll ask the chief of the eunuchs. And of course, the chief of the eunuchs tells him in verse 10, you know, I don't know about this. This makes me scared. No one's ever asked for this before. You're just gonna get malnourished. You can't just survive. All the things we have, we need you to be doing. You need to eat the best of the foods with the most calories (laughs) and the most fat. You can't go on a diet right now, in other words. I can't present you before the king as this skinny, malnourished slave. One, you'll be killed and discarded, and two, I'll lose my job, because my job is to keep you fat and happy so that you'll love this place and get indoctrinated to all of its customs and beliefs. He says, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the use who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel's like, okay, fair enough. I'll go ask somebody else. And and even better, let's just do a 10-day trial. Let's put God to the test and see if God won't be faithful to me and through this very ordinary, simple meal, provide all the strength and nourishment that I need. What this is gonna require is a miracle. To pull up. I don't know if you caught that in the first reading. But this ordinary act will require extraordinary provision from God. And speaking of that, let's look at the power that God shows behind this work. This, was, this would appear to the Babylonians, as it does to the chief of the units, to just be totally foolish and naive. Like naive at best, foolish at worst. It would normally be a simple issue of protein and calories, but in God's hands, it's something else entirely. So they agree to this 10-day trial. Daniel and his friends, they pray expectantly for God to do this, I'm sure. The Babylonians are probably shocked when it actually works because you look in verse 15, it says at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were not just adequate. They didn't just make the cut. (laughs) What does it say? They were better in appearance. They're fatter, (laughs) In flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. This means that God's miraculous provision didn't just make them adequate and able to keep up, but they were better off and far more fit than the rest. Again, let's go back to the parallels between food and God's word. The manna from heaven for the Israelites, the food here set before Daniel, it's meant to cue us into the idea that God's word Jesus tells man does not live by bread alone. He fights temptation when Satan in the wilderness. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. He's saying that God's word is more elemental to our health and our well-being than food itself. It's more sufficient and adequate than we could ever imagine. 
If we would only make ourselves dependent upon it and consume it and nourish ourselves with it, yet we ignore this. We think we, we don't need it. We don't set it before us every day in the simplest of ways. And we are spiritually malnourished. We live in a culture that is spiritually malnourished and is dying spiritually. If only we would set this before us. God says, when you are weak, I will be strong. I will show my strength through you. And Daniel literally puts himself in a situation to make himself weak so that God can show his miraculous power and strength. If only we would lean into those moments of our own weakness and trust what God can do. The purpose of Daniel's resolve to not eat of the king's food, but to set his own table before him is to remember every single day who he is, where he comes from, and who it is that loves him, who it is that will providentially and sovereignly take care of him every single day of his exile. Those are the reminders that we need. What reminders do you have? What tables are you setting before yourself every day? Are we setting tables full of the world's delectable dishes that will only make us fat and apathetic and comfortable? Or tables full of God's bountiful and sufficient and adequate manna? We have all indulged. I know I have crave the food of this world, pleasure, sensuality, power, prestige, opulence, control. We feasted on these instantly gratifying fast food indulgences and it's left us spiritually out of shape and useless in God's hands, dull and apathetic. What shall we do? What hope do we have? We have the same hope. Daniel and his friends had thousands of years ago. We can trust in God's provision for us, and God loves to give his mercy and his grace. He's given us his word and his church and worship and the means of grace, this table that we're going to go to in just a bit, to help us remember and rest upon him alone. Again, the simplest of meals, the simplest of elements to sustain your faith to strengthen you and fatten you up spiritually. Do you believe that? Is this just the ritual for you? Just going through the motions? Check the box, I'm good. Or do you depend on this? One thing I really struggle with in showing my sinful dependence upon the things of this world is I think when I wake up, oh, Instagram will satisfy me. And when I put my head on my pillow, oh, I should check Instagram. That'll make me feel better. That's so messed up. I literally have a Bible sitting next to my bed. <laughs> Why not grab that? <laughs> Why do I think foolishly that the things of this world and their complexities <laughs> are going to provide what God has promised? 
So we see the power. The power belongs to God. He is the power behind this very simple and almost kind of strange decision by Daniel. And he's working a miracle. Lastly, I want to look at the product of his friend's resolve. What is it producing? I think this is the best part. Again, a simple act of faith is producing these godly, disciplined disciples of grace to bless their enemies. They're infiltrating the Babylonian kingdom at its highest levels through simple acts of faith and obedience and discipline. You want to change the world? You want to change East Nashville and this neighborhood? Don't complicate it. I hope David's laying, out, laying it out for you super simple. Pray. Go have some tea. We put so much pressure on ourselves, especially as pastors, because we're like, oh, we got to change the world. What do we, we got these savior complexes. We got to figure this out. And God's like, no, stop. Just pray and read the word and hear the word preached and gather together and then watch me work. Put God to the test. He loves to be tested in those ways. Hey, we're going to proceed in our weakness. We're going to be this small band of brothers and sisters, and we're just going to watch God work. And especially if you're a congregate coming to a church and you're like, I got to find a church where we're just, we're just changing everything. No. It's done so subtly. It's in God's timing, not yours. You know, a day is a thousand years to God and vice versa. What this is producing, this simple act of discipline, is extraordinarily sharp instruments in God's hands to make his name known in this enemy territory. And God, this has always been God's heart, right? His heart has always been missional. So he's always been moving the chess pieces around, even against his people's own will, right? Joseph didn't want to go into slavery, but God's like, you're going to go into slavery, you're going to go down in Egypt, and you're going to make my, my name known. You know, we all know about Jonah. You're going to Nineveh, whether you like it or not. So even in our own disobedience or even our own unfaithfulness, God is still so powerfully at work. That, that's the great hope we have. Because we're failing at this, right, in so many ways. We feel like failures, but God is saying, no, no, no. Just keep, keep getting up every day and recommitting yourself. And I'll work. And so he's positioning his people all over the world. Even as they're warring with other nations, God is still using Israel. You know, as they're living in fear and saying, we want kings like everyone else, God is still moving them around. And that's what he's done with Daniel. He's placed them in this position for a very distinct purpose. It says, in every matter of wisdom in verse 20 and understanding about which the king inquired them, he found them 10 times better. I love that they put a number to it, right? Not, they were just better. They were 10 times better. Than all the magicians and enchanters. Such a great picture of the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, working together in cohesion to accomplish God's eternal purposes. It's not all on you. That's the relief. Daniel and his friends' resolve, fueled by God's power, produces blessing to the nations. God's covenant promises are being fulfilled. Their identity stripped away. Their people annihilated. Imprisoned, abused, 
manipulated, God's at work. It just shows us, even as things like gender and identity and truth and authority are pressed and pressured upon us, God does still use his people to bear witness as the privileged means by which his truth goes forward in all of the earth, even in East Nashville. We must not lose hope in this no matter our cultural situation. I'll close with this. We have to build our lives on the most ordinary of things, ordinary rituals and rhythms of grace to remember our total dependence upon God. We need to set these tables before ourselves and learn how to do it. And we do that through the church and through discipleship because that's exactly what Jesus did in the presence of his own enemies with his friends. Just as Daniel set the simplest of meals before himself and his friends in the presence of his enemies as not just a reminder, but as a means to strengthen his faith, so too Jesus chose to set the simplest of meals as the greater Daniel. You know, so many pastors, I, it just made me cringe. I mean, like people I really respect and love, I don't know if you came across this, but like the main title of this passage in most of the sermons was Dare to Be Like Daniel. And I was just like, oh, I don't think that's what it's going for. Like Daniel's great. 16-year-old Daniel is awesome. And yes, we should be faithful. That's not the point. The point is that as much as we try to be like Daniel, we are all failing pretty miserably. We need Jesus. <laughs> we need to be dare to ask Jesus for help, <laughs> which is exactly what Daniel did. One pastor said this. It's just, I just, I'm just going to read what he said because he put it much better than I can. He said, the reality, and this is the last thing I'll leave you guys with, the reality for most of us is that when we look at our lives, we find that we're not like Daniel and his three friends. We are far more like the nameless multitude who were deported along with Daniel who adopted foreign names, ate the king's food, worshiped his gods, and altogether became like the Babylonians. In many respects, we are assimilated to the culture in ways we don't even realize, and our futures are mortgaged to it. So if the message is simply be like Daniel and all will be well, then let's just stop reading now. The more we get to know Daniel, the more we come to realize that we are not Daniels. Far from it. The good news of the gospel is this. A greater Daniel came. To bless the faithless and the unfaithful nations with his very life. So compromised saints like you and me don't have to rely on our own ability to stay undefiled, but we can rely on Jesus' pure and undefiled life provided in our place. Jesus went through his own time of exile, and during it, he too set a table of grace in the presence of his enemies, with and for his friends to remind them of God's faithfulness to love and strengthen them until the end. Let's do the same thing this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful that there are these themes and these stories, <laughs> uh, oftentimes revolving around food in the scriptures, that are just such beautiful pictures of the gospel and the power of your word to nourish us. I mean, thinking of the feeding of the 5,000 as the bread came down from Jesus through his disciples to the nations to feed them, showing us your word goes through us as we nourish ourselves on it. You work powerfully and miraculously to literally change the world. May we be like those disciples who are just saying, 
We don't know what we're doing, but we just want to go. Please use us, even in our weakness. We ask for your power in this church, that you would use this church as a salt and light and a blessing to this community. Even in failed or fallen attempts to do so, Lord, you still work. May we trust that. May we go from here with bold courage and faith to do the simplest of things, to do ordinary things, to see you work extraordinarily. In Jesus' name, amen.